This morning we are in the Gospel of John once again, looking at the intercessory prayer of our Lord Jesus. The high priestly prayer, as it is sometimes called, and we will be looking this morning at John chapter 17, verses 11 through 16. This prayer, of course, was among the final prayers of our Lord Jesus just before he went to the cross. And in view of that, he says there in verse 11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. In all the Gospels, we do not find a more extensive revelation of our Lord Jesus as our great high priest, as the one mediator between God and men, than we find here in John 17. Our Lord Jesus uttered this prayer shortly before he set out with his disciples for the Garden of Gethsemane. And this prayer was particularly special for unlike many of his prayers which were in secret to which the disciples were not privy, this prayer was prayed openly before his disciples. And even a casual reading of these verses of this prayer will readily indicate the tremendous depths of love our Lord Jesus had for his disciples. And that can be seen in verses 9 and 11 in particular, in which he endearingly regards them as having been given to him by his Father. And throughout the prayer, we see something of the passion, the intensity, the earnestness with which he petitions the Father on their behalf. This prayer should be for us believers today a source of great assurance, a source of great comfort, because as we said last time, it gives us a sample, it gives us a, a snapshot of the kind of prayer that Jesus is presently praying for us at the right hand of God in heaven. And it's said of John Knox, the Scottish reformer, that during his final days, he would have his, this prayer, this high priestly prayer of Jesus read to him every day. He was on his deathbed, and he would ask that this prayer be read to him every day. In fact, we are told that his wife was reading it to him at the time of his death, November 24, 1752. Well, let's look at this prayer for his disciples this morning, and the prayer really begins in verse 11. And the question is, for what does Jesus pray as he intercedes for his disciples? And the first thing for which he prays, and this is what we'll spend our time looking on this morning, just one point, he prays for their security. He prays for their security. We see that in verses 11, 12, and 15. 
And in these verses, the words keep and kept occur some four times. In view of the fact that he was leaving them to return to the Father, he prayed in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given them. Let me stop there for a moment because I think it's worth noting that this name of our God is and should be reserved for him. It's a sad thing when men arrogate to themselves titles and honorifics, if you want to say that, that belong to deity. God is peculiarly holy father. In fact, he is the holy father. It's the height of blasphemy, I believe, for man to arrogate to himself that title. But we're saying here that in view of the fact that he was leaving them to return to his father in heaven, he prayed Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. Some commentators believe that the name that's given him, that the text read, keep them in your name which you have given me. In other words, the name that the Father has given the Son. That's one way of reading it. Another way of reading it is to see that the which you have given me as referring to the disciples, the followers of his. And I think I would more follow the idea that he's referring to the disciples because consistently the focus has been on them. Keep them, keep them, keep them. In scripture, the name of God, as we have said from time to time, is representative of all that God is, of all that God does. The name of God speaks of his character. The name of God speaks of his attributes. The name of God speaks of his power. In scripture, the name of God thus signifies, among other things, protection for his people. And hence, Proverbs 18 verse 10 assures us the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. That's the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is representative of who God is, of all that God does, of his character. So in stating that he had kept his disciples in his father's name, Jesus was in effect underscoring the illimitable security whereby his disciples were being kept, preserved, and protected in the world. That has to be a whole lot of keeping right there. That he kept them in the Father's name speaks of the enormous power he invested in their safekeeping. Indeed, he kept them by the power of his might. He kept them in accordance with his character as the faithful God, the God who can be relied on. He kept them by the power, by the might, by the faithfulness of God. And by his power, that power, no force in all the world can ever prevail. Indeed, the question is raised in Romans chapter 8. Verse 31, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God is our protector, if God is our defense, if in him we have an illimitable resource of keeping power, then no force in all the world can ever come against us. Not even Satan with all the hosts of hell can prevail against the purposes of God for his people. As he prays for the security of his people, Jesus continues, notice verse 15, he says there, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I'm not asking you, Father, to remove them from this world. What I'm asking you for is to protect them 
while they're in the world from the evil one. He states in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them. You see the recurrence of that word kept? He says, while I was here on earth, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled and when Jesus says there, except the son of perdition, he's not suggesting that in any way he failed. He's not saying in any way, well, I was 99% successful in keeping these disciples. Only one has been lost. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, all that the Father gave me, all that God in his sovereign purpose and grace gave me, I have kept them. And not one of them is lost. Well, the question is, what was involved in this keeping? How, in what sense, did he keep them? That's a very good question. How did he keep them? Well, we know that he kept and guarded them from physical harm. So the first thing was this. He kept them from physical harm during, particularly, that time leading up to his crucifixion. He kept them from physical harm leading up to his crucifixion. He sought their safety from those who came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. We learn this from John chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. In fact, John tells us that following this prayer, this prayer he prayed here in John 17, Judas came with a band of soldiers. He came with a band of officers to the garden where Jesus and his disciples were. And picking up at verse 4, on to verse 9, listen to what John says. Underscoring the keeping power of our Lord Jesus. Then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Here's what John says. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. You see that? He first of all protected them physically. He protected them physically. That Jesus had been protecting them physically, had been praying for their physical protection, explains why it was that during his arrest and even during his trial, you remember many of them were fearful, many of them, some of them went into hiding. Even then and there, no one could put a hand on them to arrest them and to kill them as they did the Lord Jesus. Why? Because they were under protection. They were under divine protection. Jesus kept them. Even though they were quite fearful, the fact that they could move about without being apprehended, without being harmed, attests to the divine, miraculous power by which our Lord Jesus had kept them. I tell you something, my friends. When God protects his people, you see, here's what the word of God, the word of God says it in many ways how he protects his people. If God be for us, who can be against us? 
The word of God says, when a man's ways pleases the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And if we are under God's protection, my friends, we need to understand that we are in good hands. We are in capable hands. We are in the all-powerful hands of Almighty God. And no force in all the world can ever touch us. Now, here's the point. It doesn't mean that people cannot set out to harm us. And even, quote-unquote, succeed in harming us. But here's the point. You and I are so protected that, listen, the only way they can touch us is unless God wills it. And somebody says, well, where's the comfort in that? The comfort there is this, that whatever God orders is best. You ask, what's the worst they could do to us? You say, kill us. That's not the worst because our Lord Jesus says, fear not those who kill the body, But after that, they cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can kill both soul and in hell. We are under divine protection. We are under, you see, many times, you see, we tend to just be in the realm of the spiritual, and that's good. But we must also remember, beloved, that God does not just protect us spiritually. God protects us even physically. How often we are driving the highways and we pass terrible, horrible accidents. And here's the point. We sometimes have what we call near misses, what could have been fatal. And yet, at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, who was there protecting us other than Almighty God? Our Lord Jesus prays for the protection, the physical protection of his Disciples. There was a time when the Apostle Paul was told by the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus appeared to him in a night's vision and says, Paul, do not fear, for I have much people in this city. And you know something? Yes, Paul faced stoning, he faced beatings, but they did not take his life until God so will. All along what God kept him. In fact, Paul, toward the close of his life, says this, The Lord will preserve me from the mouth of the lion, and he will reserve me unto the day of his coming. Second Timothy chapter 4, you'll find language to that effect. Well, not only did Jesus pray, not only did his safekeeping of his disciples involve protecting them from physical harm, but second, his keeping and guarding his disciples involved protecting them from spiritual disaster. It involved protecting them from making shipwreck of their faith. We see this in his preserving the Apostle Peter and the other disciples from being sifted and overrun and destroyed by Satan. You remember Jesus, within that whole context of his trial and his approach to the cross, he appealed, he he said to Simon in, In Luke 22, verse 31, he addressed Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, behold. In other words, look with amazement. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. You say God would never allow Satan to come near us. Not necessarily true. Remember what he allowed in Paul's life, the thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him. Here we find Satan is demanding that To have Peter, we see in the book of Job, he comes as a prosecutor and he goes before God and he charges Job before the throne of God. He accuses Job of serving God because of what God can give him. 
And here Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like we But, verse 32, I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And how we know that Peter's faith would not fail. Yes, Jesus told him he would pray for him. But notice what Jesus says. He says this, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Now, on the surface, it seemed as though Peter and the rest of the apostles had made shipwreck of their faith because we are told how that they were scattered. They went into hiding. Peter, three times, denied the Lord Jesus. Remember, Peter, disgracefully, shamefully, we would say, denied the Lord Jesus, even with curses and oaths. I don't know the man. But praise be to God, following the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, he wonderfully restored Peter and the rest of the apostles to service. Why so? Because he was determined to keep them. He was determined to keep them. He was determined to guard them from stumbling and falling away from him. He says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like we, but I prayed for you. That your faith does not fail. Jesus kept his disciples by praying for them. He prayed for their physical safety. He saw to their physical safety. He prayed for their spiritual protection. He prayed for their spiritual protection. He saw to their spiritual protection. Now there's something we must not miss as we look at particularly at verse 15. That prayer he expresses to the Father. He says this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And the point I want for us to see here is, is, is this, that it's significant that Jesus did not request that they be taken out of the world. It is significant when we consider how that in John chapter 15, verse 19, as well as John 17 and verse 14, he had characterized this world as hating his disciples. He says they're not of this world. They don't belong to this world. In fact, this world hates them just as it hates me. And that Jesus did not take his disciples out of the world, notwithstanding the hostility of the world, notwithstanding the fact that the world was inimical to God and to his people, Suggest this, that his primary concern, listen, his primary concern for his people in this present age is not their ease and comfort. God's purpose for his people, my friends, in this age is not their insulation from troubles and trials from persecutions, is not their escape from the difficulties and hardships that come with living in this sinful, broken world. It's part and parcel of the lot that we must face in the world. In fact, he says in John 16, verse 33, he said to his disciples, in the world you will have tribulations. It is not God's purpose for us in this present age to take us out of trouble, to remove us from this world. Somebody says, you know, why is it? You hear the question sometimes, uh, why was it that when God saved us, he didn't just take us to glory at once? Why did he leave us in this cruel, mixed up, messed up world? And we answer to that, we would say that Jesus did not pray that his disciples be taken out of the world, suggests that having saved us, he left us in this world for service. He left us in this world to work for him. 
It hints at the idea that it is not, it is not his intention for his followers to live in seclusion and isolation from the world. That it's not his will that they should cloister themselves in some monastery living as monks, living as hermits, trying to avoid the sins and temptations of the world. No, that's not God's will. We are to steer clear of the evil, but God wants us in the world. In fact, here's what the Apostle James says. Is it James 1.15 somewhere there? He says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. What is it, James? He says this, to visit the fatherless and widows and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What is Jesus saying here? God's purpose for us in this world is that we should have contact with the world without becoming contaminated by the world. He's saying that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Jesus would not pray for his disciples to be taken out of the world because he intends for them to remain in this world for service to him, which among other things involves their functioning as salt of the earth, as lights of the world, exemplifying his transforming grace to an unbelieving world. As Philippians chapter 2 verse 15 says regarding God's purpose for his redeemed people, he says there in Philippians chapter 2 verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. God has left us in this world of darkness, this world that is mixed up and messed up so that we can be as lights in the world. And as I said, this effectively answers the question, then why was it that when God saved us, he never just take us out of this world, this wicked world? No, he would not take us to heaven right away because he has work for us to do in this world. So notwithstanding the evil, notwithstanding the hostility of the world in which he was leaving his disciples, our Lord Jesus did not petition his father to take them out of the world. He did not pray to the father that he would take them out from the afflictions of this world. He did not pray that they be removed from the world so as to escape the physical harm that would be inflicted on them, the hatred and all manner of evil that would be levied against them. Rather, he prayed for their protection from the evil one. The evil one, of course, is none other than Satan, the devil, you see, Jesus prayed concerning that which mattered most. Because, you see, the greatest peril, the greatest danger that you and I face in this world lies not in the physical realm. I think we hinted to, at that earlier when we said it's not even our dying. It's not our, even our being killed. The greatest peril we face in this world is not some deadly disease. And we ought to be concerned about diseases. The greatest peril we face in this world is not the rise of some tyrannical leader. And there will be, according to the word of God, the book of Revelation. The single greatest peril, the single greatest, may I use this expression, it's banded about today, the single greatest existential threat that you and I face in this world comes from our arch enemy, Satan, the devil. 
The Word of God tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that is, against human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Beloved, we are at war. The greatest war taking place right now, let me say this, we're not in any way belittling what is taking place in the world. But here's the point. I want to make this clear. The greatest war that's taking place right now is not between Israel and Hamas. It's horrible what's happening there. It's terrible what's happening there. We should be alarmed. We should be concerned. The greatest threat is not Russia. The greatest threat is not Russia launching some, or, or even the United States, launching some nuclear missile. That, that's not the greatest threat we face. The greatest threat we face is from Satan. We wrestle against a malevolent supernatural foe, a being who is implacably hostile, opposed to God and his people. That's what the Word of God teaches First Peter 5 verse 8 says this, that as our adversary, he, that is the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And my friends, if it were not for the grace of God, if it were not for the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ, he would have his way with us. He would rip us apart. He would mangle us. He would tear us. He would destroy us. He would land our souls right in hell with him. He's a most treacherous and deadly enemy who is ever scheming against us, marshalling and orchestrating his evil designs against us. And my friends, far more than you and I know, far more than you and I can ever imagine, as our arch enemy, he's relentless in his bid, not just to harm us, but to defeat us and destroy us. So regarding this prayer that his disciples be kept from the evil one, Jesus was asking, among other things, that they be guarded, that they be protected, that they be shielded from being led astray by the allure of the devil, by the, the, the temptations of the devil. He was praying that they might not be overrun and be defeated by his raging assault, but that they would be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. As Christians, what comforting assurance we have in this truth that as our high priest, as our redeemer, as our savior, our Lord Jesus both keeps us and prays for security. We are in good hands. We are in good hands. And surely by his powerful safekeeping, by his effectual prayers, we have, we could say, the greatest security system, the greatest protection there is in all the world. Such protection that surpasses the most advanced security system there is. That we are kept by the prayers of Jesus is an assuring reminder that our safekeeping in this world, be it physical or spiritual, is dependent on God and not on us. My friends, if it were dependent on us to keep ourselves, if it were dependent on us to guard ourselves, particularly from the devil, we would have lost the battle long ago because he's stronger than we are. He's a vicious enemy. We are no match for him. We have to be protected by our Lord Jesus. In fact, we have to be protected by the triune God. In highlighting this fact that with this I close, C.H. Spurgeon expresses the need for protection or continual protection by the Lord Jesus 
as follows. Spurgeon says this quote. He says, greatly we do need protecting. We have been redeemed, but we must still be protected. We have been regenerated, but we must be protected. We are pure in heart and hands, but we must be protected. We are made alive with divine life. We have aspirations after the holiest things. Our love of Christ is intense, but we must be protected. End quote. What is that saying to us? As strong as we might be or think ourselves to be, we are no keepers of ourselves unless the Lord Jesus prays for us, unless the triune God keeps and guards and preserves us, will fall into an eternity of hell apart from the presence of God. Thank God for his keeping, preserving grace. Thank God for the prevailing effectual prayers of our Lord Jesus. By him we are kept and by him we are saved. The question is, do you know him this day as your Savior? Maybe listening by way of Zoom, you're not a Christian. You've never called upon the Lord Jesus to save you. Here's the point. 1 John 5 verse 19 tells your particular condition because he says there, the whole world lies in the arms of the evil one. And you're either in the arms of God under the protection of God or you're in the arms under the realm of Satan. But that can be changed. May God grant that he would give you the faith to turn to him, to trust him as your Savior, as your Lord.